Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Of a missional disciple. Now, last, this is actually our last week, so if you've never been here before and you're like, what are we even talking about? It's okay, we only have uh, four weeks before this. You can just binge listen all afternoon. You're not going to do that. It's okay, but you can go listen to it if you want. But this is the last week that's been building, and essentially I chose this term ecology because it's a scientific term, that, and it's a, it, ecology, the, the definition is it's the study of the relationships among living organisms and their physical environment. You know what's interesting to me today is I think that if we were really to assess ourselves as believers or followers of God, would it be said of us, right, that if somebody were to study you and your interaction with your physical environment, would they be able to ascertain, oh, that's a follower of Jesus? Because as sad as it is today, and I like deal with the inner cynicism of it. It's like most, it feels like most believers, if we were to follow you and study your relationships with your physical environments, we wouldn't come to the conclusion that you love God. Or what if I came to this, if I said, a lot of us, I think we know we love God, but the exterior interactions with the physical environment doesn't dictate it or take it a step further, is if we studied your physical interactions and your physical time and what you go through, would we be able to ascertain again that you are a disciplined follower and learner of him? Because once again, we've stripped in the name of religion and all of these things. We've, we've, we've labeled everything as relationship and nothing that is commitment to Christ that even feels a hint like religion. See here, what you will hear me say a lot is habits, routines, rhythm, practice, lifestyle. These are the things that make a disciple. So to claim lordship to Christ, there should be a practical aspect in which we can study the rhythms of your life and see Jesus. We can study the rhythms of who you are and see something different. And so today, once again, we've been talking for the last few weeks of these characteristics of a missional disciple. And the first one was seeing Then we went caring, praying, receiving, and going. Five weeks, all we did was talk about seeing, caring, praying, receiving, and today, going. Now, what I want to do is I just want to debunk all narrative of going today. Because as sad as it is, what we've done is we've, we've marketed and polished the aspect of being a Christian who goes into all the world with, you know, the statistics and the testimony videos and the look at what I did for the kingdom instead of the people who are just willing to say, God, you have my time and you have my unpolished, imperfect life. Do whatever you want with it. Because that's what going is. In this day and age, we need less perfect people and less polished people who have all the answers. We need people, and you'll hear me say this later, whose gift is their presence. Not correcting, not trying to fix, but being that presentness and being that peace. You know, very often do I see Jesus, yes, we see him speak truth and correction, 
But most of those conversations are with the religious. See, those who come into contact with his unconditional and miraculous love are changed. But not just changed in what they need, but in how they live. And as sad as it is today, I believe a lot of us, we come to God with needs. Not with the assessment of God. I don't just need you to meet a need. I need you to meet me. You know, I cut my teeth uh, in public school ministry. And what I mean by that is um, when I was 19 was kind of when I first started doing uh, public school Bible studies. And at the time we had one school and then we kind of expanded to four or five schools. And what we, we kind of cracked a code in which the code was that we found out in our specific area of Michigan that we wouldn't gather during school times, but if we wanted to gather outside of school times with students that we could. But what we also found out is at the middle school specifically, all the buses had to drop students off early And so the students would just sit in the lunchroom because the buses needed to be used for the high school. And so every week what I would do is I would bring uh, dodgeballs and donuts. And we would get in the gym, and if people wanted to come, and then I would just give a five-minute, usually it was one scripture, one story, one invitation, and it wasn't for people to receive Jesus, whether it was prayer or whatever it was. And I did these for years, and I'm going to tell you this. Some of you guys are like, wow, that's really cool of you, Pastor. You know, that's, that's a really cool ministry. No, it was terrible. You want to get hit with a dodgeball at 6 a.m.? Some of you guys are like, no, it's for the gospel. No, that wasn't for the gospel. That was demons. <laughs> it's funny, too, because like, you get in a room with middle schoolers, and it's like, oh, where's the adult? Let's all try to peg him at the same time. I, I have some stories that probably I, I shouldn't tell. But anyway, so we used to give out dodgeballs and donuts, and then in the high schools, we would just go, and we would just invite people from the hallway, and... That's kind of what I used to do, and it was in a small town, and it's kind of funny how the Lord works things out, but I'll never forget, I feel like I've, I've always gone through a little bit of an identity crisis when it comes to Christian productivity, meaning, okay, everybody tells me I should be doing this, but at the same time, it doesn't really feel like I'm doing anything, I'm not really seeing fruit, okay, why do I do this? And I believe that there are elements, in my opinion, I'm going to be really frank with you. I don't think deconstruction is a bad thing. I think deconversion is a bad thing. But I believe deconstruction, when you have to assess what you believe, why you believe it, and if you actually choose it and will stand on it, is a very healthy thing for a believer. Why? Because we've just been ideologues a lot of the times where people give out whatever their agenda, purpose, or political slant is. And then at the same time, when it starts rubbing up against humanity, you're like, wait, what? Do I believe that? So I remember going through this where I'm like, God, is there really, like, why am I doing this? To, like, evangelize every week? Yeah, it's cool that I'm in schools, but, like, where's the fruit? And around this time... I remember we were doing an event at this church, and this guy came up to me I'd never met before. He was a senior in high school. He walks up to me, and he looks at me. He says, you're Micah, aren't you? The dodgeball and donuts guy, which I love that nickname. If you want to call me that, totally fine. But he looked at me, and he goes, you know, Micah, I'm a senior now, but when I was in seventh grade, you gave one of your little messages, and you didn't know, but my, my dad had died the week prior. And what you spoke about, and he literally gave me the five-minute message I'd given him five years previously. And he said, that has always stuck with me. And I've carried it through season after season. And I have said that scripture hundreds of times. Thank you for that message. And I think for a lot of us, we're like, oh, cool story. But I don't necessarily have that 
opportunity. You know, there was another story I was thinking about today, and it's, in my opinion, the biggest struggle for us as believers is we want everything finite, yet we serve an infinite God. We want everything inside of time frames, comfort zones, inside of our wrapping paper, inside of our ideology, inside of our personal quirks. And that's just not the God we serve. One of these schools, my least favorite one was kind of a, this is terrible to say, but it was a hick farm town, Coloma, where my wife went to high school. <laughs> that's why I can say it, because it's like, I'm married in, so technically it's me, but it's definitely not. This particular school was a 25-minute drive, and there would maybe be eight kids that came every week, and I would have to leave at like 5.45 a.m., and it was just god-awful. But anyway, there was this one kid, and I only did this school for two years, and this kid, his two years he was in high school, I used to give out donuts, and he would come in, take three donuts, and leave. Never stay. Three donuts, leave. And it'd always be like, oh, there he is. And he had no shame. That's what I loved about him is he just had no shame. I'm going to take three. I don't care what you say. Bye. Like no commitment to like anything at all. I would always try. You going to stay this week? No. Okay. See you. After we stopped at that school later on, after high school, one of his best friends who was a part of our ministry um, was actually killed in a drive-by. And I had to do the funeral for this particular kid that I knew really, really well. And when I was doing the funeral, that kid that I gave the donuts to that had never sat there came up to me afterwards. And he looked at me and he was like, man, that really impacted me. I ended up praying with him that day and we kind of reconnected. But that week he messaged me and we were supposed to get together. And he messaged me and said, hey, I've got a huge need. Can I borrow $150? So I said, yeah. So I... Gave him $150. Never heard from him again for another two years. What does that mean? He stole $150 from him. I'm at the gym, and as I'm at the gym, this guy's working out next to me. This is years later. Now he's probably young 20s, 22, 23. 15 years old, giving him donuts. 18, 19, stealing 150 bucks from me. 20 year, 22, I walk up to him. I say, hey, man, just so you know, I know who you know who I am because we talked. And I don't want you to feel bad because I just want to give you that $150. Don't feel weird every time you see. So this guy looks at me and he's just shocked. He's like, he's like well, you want to give me $500? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> if anybody wants to give $500 personally, my wife's in the front. No, I'm kidding. Oh, that's terrible. Actually, I repent. No, don't do it. Don't give it to somebody around you. Anyway. Enough pastors doing that. Anyway, oh, too soon. Okay. Um, too soon. Need a new jet. Anyway. Um, that was so terrible. Once again, the inner cynicism just hurts a little. But <laughs> I'm not recovering from this. Uh, this kid's at the gym, though, and I say, it's fine. And he goes, man, you're... You're really cool. I was like, what do you guys do? Like your church stuff. And I find out he's a basketball player. I was a basketball player. I said, we play basketball. So he starts coming to basketball. Then over time, he starts coming to college. Then over time, he starts coming to church. Then over time, he starts bringing his girl. Then over time, he has his first kid. 
then over time, he starts bringing his girl and his kid, and he gets a good job. And that was actually one of the harder guys I had to leave in Michigan because there wasn't this, like, moment where it was like, oh, let me repent of my sins, be baptized, all the stuff. It was just 10 years. Here's some donuts. Here's some money. Let's play basketball. You can come to college if you want, but if not, oh, you, you want to come to church? Okay. The infiniteness of going is not this aspect of, God, I want to be a vessel for you to be used by you. No, it's just you saying, God, you can just have everything. Whoever crosses my path, whoever has need, whoever's right in front of me, I'm just willing. See, that's the aspect of going, I'm telling you today. Some of us will never go overseas on mission trips, and I've done all that, and it's incredible. But I'm going to tell you this, right now the need is for imperfect and unpolished people to say, I'll go. I'll love those around me. I'll give with no agenda. I'll stand in the gap when there's pain and brokenness. I'll do it, because that's what I'm called to do. So today, let's read some scripture. You know, what's funny is I I kind of was trying to figure out what the best segue is to the scripture. There's no segue. Today, we're going to talk about a man by the name of Stephen. Now, some of us are like, okay, well, immediately people who know the Bible and know scripture know the story of Stephen. And you're like, okay, uh, how does this have anything to do with going? You'll understand here in a second. But I'll never forget, Stephen's story a little bit is hilarious to me because it's a, it's a decent little uh, chunk of the book of Acts. And we're going to kind of jump around, but essentially if you want to read the backstory, you can go Acts 7. But we're going to focus more on Acts 8 and Acts 11 today. But what's funny about Stephen's story, and I love it today because it's such a great reminder of what we're supposed to do in the kingdom, okay? It says that Stephen, if you literally read these passages, I might preach on it another time because I have a pocket sermon with this. It says that he is full of wisdom, full of the spirit, full of zeal and power for the Lord. And it says the apostles took note and put him in charge of the food line. I just love that. It's like, oh man, you can speak. Oh man, you got the fire of God on you. Oh man, you look good with a soup ladle. Like how many of us in here, like you get around, in this day and age, anybody who's on fire and like loves God, it's like, man, you need a platform or like you need to be a social media influencer. It's terrible. Cynicism. I repent God. But it's like Stephen's like full of the power and passion of God, full of the favor of God, full of just everything God. Man, you'll be really good at just flipping sandwiches for everybody. So Stephen gets put in front of all of everybody kind of helping, making sure the widows aren't discriminated against in the food line, which is another story for another time. But what happens is, is in his free time, he gets in a little bit of trouble. And not a little bit of trouble. What he does is he confronts some Pharisees and Sadducees at the time who actually had more power than I think he realized even when he challenged them. So he starts giving for lack of a better term, a borderline dissertation from the beginning until all the way through Jesus' ministry. It's over 50 verses in Acts, and he just incinerates these dudes. But at that time, see, he didn't realize that they actually had the power to do something about being disrespected, and in turn, Stephen is murdered. 
See, I say murdered because martyrdom is not on the scene at this time. Jesus has died, but nobody else has really suffered outside of Jesus. Stephen's killed, and everybody's eyes are like, wait a second, we could die for these beliefs? That's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3. It says this, Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. And he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Context is key here. Essentially what you need to understand is when Jesus, after the ascension, goes up to heaven, everybody gathers in Jerusalem, hunkers down, waiting for that promise of the Holy Spirit. Which, if you know anything about church history, Acts 2 happens. Holy Spirit is poured out, which is the omnipresence of Jesus inside of his people in which he writes His words on their hearts breathes into them and directs their lives. And now this new season of being a follower of him is ushered in. Peter stands up, gives the first crazy altar call. Thousands are saved. Guess what? Jerusalem church exploding. The only problem is this. Jesus' final words, great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Jerusalem is popping off. Everything's going crazy. But guess what happens? Stephen is killed. And when Stephen is killed, the persecution scatters people all over. And that's where we pick up now. And Saul, the leader of this persecution, the one whose coats people put at the feet of Saul, at his feet as they were picking up stones to crush Stephen's physical body into the ground, is now the one who is leading the charge against that. But then some years pass, and look at what happens to the story. Acts 11, 19 through 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. That's an important thing for you to realize. Jews alone is because actually that was something that was still a lot of friction. People believed that the the faith of Jesus was specifically for Jewish people, and Gentiles, that's a term for an unbeliever, somebody who was raised without Jewish upbringing, they're literally like, there's a hesitancy. Okay, I don't know how I can talk to you because you don't understand the scope of what I'm trying to offer you. So what happens? Peter's talked to some Gentiles, and there's been some conversion. Jesus has, but there hasn't really been this widespread buy-in to speak to people who are outside of the Jewish faith until this. But there were some of them, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This has not happened outside of Jerusalem. Meaning in Jerusalem there had been wide converts, but outside of Jerusalem it has not expanded yet. Antioch is the first place where people are like, wait a second, this can happen outside of the holy city? Not only can this happen outside of the holy city, this can happen outside of the holy city with unholy people, Gentiles? Let's keep reading. It says this. 
The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent off Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas is a big boy in the church world at this time. Somebody who's righteous and devout, somebody who gained his apostleship by being one of the first people who really sold everything, placed it at the apostles' feet and just said, do whatever you want. My full life is to Jesus. Afterwards, if you know the story of Acts, Barnabas is elevated so quickly that Ananias and Sapphira see it and scheme to try to get the same superiority that he got in his sacrifice for themselves However, lose their lives as it comes out that they have been withholding what they thought they were actually giving. So Barnabas stepping up to the scene is like, okay, man, he's one of these guys that in the early church, he is a boss. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas. It was Barnabas who made Paul. So Barnabas shows up to Antioch. And if you know anything, Antioch is hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. Many believe a two to a three week walk that he goes just because they're hearing rumblings that this church, something's going on at. So Barney shows up and it says this. Verse 23, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all the resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Where did we start? Saul murdering Stephen. Where did this start? Persecution. Everybody left because of the persecution of Stephen. Who killed Stephen? Saul. It's... Let's keep reading because it makes zero sense until the end. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers of the people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I'm going to read this to you so this story fully sinks in. The first church established outside of Jerusalem is Antioch. This is where non-Jews were converted by the multitude in one of the first instances. This is the church that the word Christian is the first time it's ever used for a people group. And how it started is someone is murdered that births a church planning network. And then the murderer is called to preach at the church that was planted because he was murdering for a year. Does this make any sense at all? Absolutely not. Think about that. If you're one of the founding members of Antioch, and if you're one of the founding members of Antioch, and you're sitting there and you're going, the reason I'm here is because you killed Stephen, and now you're the guest speaker for a year. That doesn't make no sense. See, there's such significance and symbolism in this that God says, I'm going to use a murderer and a persecutor to make a church planting movement. See, this isn't the play that I would have called if I was God. But it's what he did. How is it that this unpolished plan would then birth church expansion and a church movement that would touch every corner of the globe in the millennia to come? The first church out of Jerusalem from persecution, murder, and people running in fear. And then the murderer becoming the guest pastor. Now, if I were to say to you, you're called to go, I doubt it would be that messy. And I say that today because I think for a lot of us, our idea of going 
is this perfectly polished plan of like, okay, I've got to hit three points. He died. He was risen. The blood was poured out. You know, you could like whatever it is, whatever your denominational background or upbringing is. But in this instance, this plan and what happened, what we find out is just God is looking for willing and obedient. He's looking for people who have short-term memories but long-term hopes. Is that person you today? So what I want to talk about today is this in my kind of closing 10-minute sprint here. How to get going when it's the last thing you want to do. How do we get going on mission, being sent out into the world when as we sit here, all of us are having that pit in the stomach of the last thing I want to do is go out into all the world and tell people about Jesus. The last thing I want to do is be a messenger of the kingdom. The last thing I want to do is tell anybody or even open my mouth and say, Jesus, how do we get going When it is the last thing we want to do. Because believe it or not, you cannot be a disciple if you're not living on mission. The whole goal of discipleship is to learn, to become, and to give it away. And I think for a lot of us, what we want is we want to consume knowledge. And we want to sit there and taste if we really actually want to apply it or take it in. And it's more this skepticism-based religion than it is actually, I will live the discipline. I will live the lifestyle. I will rhythmically follow. I will stay rooted in Him, in Scripture, in spirit, in worship, in community, in generosity. See, these things, they start rolling out. You're like, wow, that sounds like a lot to ask. Sorry, this is the church that's going to ask a lot of you. If you're looking for something comfortable and something that really, you know, you feel good when you leave, that's, that's great. But I'm going to say this here. I'm going to hammer rhythm, routine, discipline, and lifestyle. Because if you don't have it, we need people who do. The world is looking, saying, who, who's even living this? And I've said it before, but I was absolutely just gripped with the passage that I was reading recently where it said this, this, this atheist author essentially said he was like, Christians are not spiritual enough to engage a world hungry for spirituality. And man, I'm going to be honest, as I read it, I'm like, dang, that might be true. That we have not rhythmically lived to a level of spiritual depth that would allow us to interact with people where they are. When we live this lifestyle, there's a depth that comes not with answers that we can offer, but a presence that we possess that is different. And it's needed. The first point today is this. The most inopportune times, places, and seasons is when God typically tests lordship. God uses interruptions and rerouting as a tool of refocus. You're called to go, and that go typically is going to look radically different than you think it does. Be open-minded. I guarantee the early church thought in Jerusalem, man, we're going to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. And this is great. Everybody's here. But the going is, okay, I guess we're getting scattered because one of our brothers was murdered. You know, if you actually asked me right now, four years ago when I lived in Michigan, if you would have came up to me and said, you're going to live in downtown Phoenix and plant a church there. I would have looked at you and been like, yeah, what? 
never even been to Phoenix. What I'm saying is this, is as you live the disciplined lifestyle, you start to open up a heart that starts to hear things and see things differently. For me specifically, when 2020 happened, when COVID happened, I was struggling with the decision of if we were going to leave and plant a church here. And one of the things I struggled with was I felt I had all certainty for my future, but I had no peace. See, and that's a funny thing because I think some of us in this room, we sense that, where we have all certainty and no peace. See, and that's the thing about following Jesus that I've found is when we left our families, our home, and moved here in just our car, I had no certainty, but I had all peace. And the challenge to you today is this, is you're going to have to choose if you want certainty or if you want peace. But if you want certainty, typically the peace of God is not attached to it. Because there is a faith that must be activated. There is a discipline that you must possess. See, peace comes from following and obedience. Even today, I've never been more at peace in my life. And the future has never been more, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. Let that sink in. When we left our families, our homes, we would have had a healthy church. It was incredible. I went from all certainty and no peace to all peace, but no certainty. What's the choice you'll make? The second thing is this. The main cause of boredom and faith is inactivity. And the main ingredient to inactivity is indifference. If you want to make a difference, it is you who must decide if you are willing, if you will actually become and prioritize being active in your faith or not. It is that simple. One of my favorite quotes of all time is actually not one that would on surface level be anything crazy until you understand the context of it. Eli Weisel, a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in his acceptance speech, says a phrase, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. Now what's fascinating about Eli Weisel that you find out is he was actually a a victim of a German Nazi concentration camp. Literally somebody who looked pure evil in the eyes as it gassed his friends and family. And his words were not, that's hate. That is the difference or the opposite of love. It's indifference. A lack of concern, empathy, or commitment. What am I saying today? I believe that a lot of the inactivity is the, in the church is just we're indifferent unless it hits our passion points. If it hits what we believe about whatever political thing we believe, if it hits whatever slant we have that we're really passionate about, then yeah, man, we're still line on it. But indifference, a lack of concern, empathy, commitment, or respect for something. See, Eli Weso, I love this because it's so convicting that somebody who literally stared Nazis in the face as they murdered the masses said, that's not hate. And this is not the opposite of love. It is those who live indifferently in the face of it. 
I want to challenge you today to not live indifferently. But at the same time, I also want to challenge you today to get into gear. Not a gear that's getting you going forward at a rapid pace, but a sustainable rhythm and lifestyle in which you're going forward and there is a target in front of you to live missionally and to go to the world in front of you. For me personally, if you go in my phone right now and you click on my reminders at the very top of that list, it says, make sure you tell one person this week about Jesus. That doesn't mean I'm going to go through the whole resurrection story and everything. A lot of the times, you know what that looks like? I'm in line somewhere. This person strikes up a conversation or I just say, hey, I like your shirt. (laughs) It's literally just happened. (laughs) We start talking and then I just look at him and I say, hey, man, whenever anybody crosses my path, I just always want to tell them because I just believe in Jesus. And if you cross my path, I want you to know how much he loves and sees you. That in this world of billions of people, he would place you right in front of me. And in an act of willingness, I just want to let you know that you have purpose and destiny. I don't care what you believe. I don't need to pray with you unless you want me to. But I just need you to know that. That's my commitment. Once a week. That's me getting my life in gear and saying I will not preach on mission without living on mission as a disciple. And some of us, we're frustrated being a disciple because we don't live on mission. Or some of us, we're frustrated because we live on mission, but we're super undisciplined and we feel burnt out. And what I want to say is this. It is discipline and mission that equal fulfillment. My last point, number three. There will always be someone who does it better than you. Or is more talented. I truly believe in this day and age we need less qualified and less polished people who admit they don't have the answers. And people who embrace the gift of unconditional love and relational commitment. People cannot embrace faith as real unless the person speaking about it is. Your present and real self, it's enough to make a difference. Believe it or not, when I was 19, when I first started, wanted to start in ministry, me and one of my best friends at the time made a choice after we went to a conference that we were going to try to start a college and young adult ministry. That friend, I remember going to him, he was, he was 25 and I was 19, and I looked at him and I said, hey man, I just want to let you know I believe in the calling for your life, and I'll commit to supporting you in whatever it looks like, because I believe you're supposed to spearhead this ministry. That friend then made a commitment, let's do it together, absolutely. After a period of a few months of inactivity, I still felt strongly that we were supposed to start something, but he was at a season in which he couldn't. So I started that ministry. When we started that ministry, years went on and it grew and was incredible. But what's fascinating about that story is that friend, four years later, died of a drug overdose. One of my close friends, who this day I have a tattoo on my leg for, I tell you that story because more talented, better speaker, better with people, could attract a crowd, had a better smile and look. There was nothing about me that made me better than him. And I want to say this to you today that I think a lot of us, we think we can come to a church, look at the pastor and say, I'll never be as good as him, so I'll not even try. 
We get on social media in this comparison-driven age and say, I'll never be able to speak like this. I'll never know scripture like this. I'll never make that amount of money where I can focus on it. I'll never. So why even try? And I want to say this to you today. And it's been something that I have just been sitting in. Your presentness is your gift. In this day and age in which people don't know how to be present in other people's pain, burden, uncertainty, or even their own, how, what even is faith? Who even is God? We have to be okay with being people who actually will allow people to ask questions that we won't give answers to. But we'll be present. We'll be the shoulder to cry on, the ear that listens, the heart that connects. See, we're not talking about spiritual manipulation unto an end. We're talking about just being hands and feet to a world that is used to people who aren't willing to come up alongside. I want to encourage you today. May you be challenged to go when it doesn't make sense, when it's not the perfect timing, when it's awkward and uncomfortable. And the last thing that we want to do. May we go today with the good news of the gospel and realize that when partnered with your presentness and your realness, it might be a light in the darkness more than you ever thought it could be. Stand to your feet. concentration camp in Cologne, Germany that was found after it was emancipated in which the writer most likely had died. Scribbled in to the cell wall, carved in was this statement. I believe in the sun even when it isn't showing. I believe in love when I feel it not. I believe in God even if he's silent. Before we go into worship, I wanted to invite us into a moment of silence and stillness. For no other reason or agenda other than to just say, God, I invite you into this silence and stillness. No matter how deep you are in your faith, no matter how far you are into your faith, that it is he who wants to meet you. I'm going to read this quote over us one more time and take a period of about 30 seconds. I believe in the sun when it isn't showing. I believe in love when I feel it not. I believe in God even when he is silent.